Thank you for being here. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. I am fortunate that Beth Ryungu's path crossed mine this past year. She tackles some profound subjects in her writing and work. Subjects that most of humanity has been forced to grapple with this past two years. I wanted to share a bit of what she's written. What happens when we die? Does it just go dark? Is there a God? Will we be judged? And how? Is there life after death? And what will it be like? When someone dies, a kind of inner door opens on these questions for us. And the closer the deceased, the more we feel the pull. To lose someone very close, such as a partner or parent, is to enter a liminal space that is occupied by these questions, whether or not you give them voice. This is the space where the real work happens, where authentic, end-of-life care can make a difference by recognizing that part of the grief we feel is grief for ourselves. When facing another's inability to overcome the limits of mortality, we also meet the inevitable limits of our own. Thank you for listening. This is episode 44. So I've been brushing up on all things Beth. Ah. I was really struck for a whole number of reasons with this business idea that you have. I would say it's a vocation more than a business idea, really. Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah. As a yeah. business, it's turned into this octopus with there are tentacles that go all over the place. So yeah, I think vocation says more than business. And there's much more going on in the world of alternative death care than I had realized. I haven't really dived into it for about seven years. I did a, a training as a soul midwife seven years ago. And uh, so did lots of reaching out and what's happening on the internet, what's happening on social media, what resources are there. And then the rest of my life took over children, full-time job, etc. And I've been yeah, my interest has stayed up, but it's it hasn't been to the depth that it has been over the last few months. So it's fantastic to see all these initiatives um, springing up. And even since COVID, there's been a whole lot. Mm -hmm. The idea of end-of-life death doulas, also known as death midwives and various other names that they're known by. There are all these training courses and they're sold out. It's incredible. And mm. there's uh, something now called... Uh, human composting, the official name, though, is natural organic reduction. And that became law at the end of last year up in uh, Washington state. This amazing woman, Katrina Spade, has been developing this for nearly 10 years. So the first bodies were laid in in January. So you know, that's a really exciting development you know, for environmentally friendly um, disposition of human remains. It's not putting carbon into the air like cremation. It's not taking up spaces, especially in cities where cemeteries are overflowing. So it's just a, a much healthier approach to end of life care. So that's why I say that I feel like there's an octopus in my life 
There are these tentacles that go into environmentally friendly disposition of remains. And then there's the end of life care, you know, how to support the dying better, particularly at home. And then there's, yes, there's this just an awakening of what does that mean for the shift in our culture, in our psyche for how we think about death and um, dying and how we want to be cared for, which in turn reflects back on our lives and how do you live your life. And when you start thinking about how you're going to die, you start automatically thinking about what matters to me, who matters to me, what ideals matter to me. All these things start filtering up and then it's what am I doing with my day to day? So it's, uh, yeah, it's far reaching. There's lots going on and it's really exciting. Allow me to offer an introduction of you. We <laughs> dove into the deep end of the conversation in some respects, and I want to just insert this introduction, and then we'll take you back a little bit, but but love what we've talked about already. Beth Ryungu, you are a mother, sister, daughter, and you've been a registered nurse, a chef, an administrator, and now you're developing a business as a soul midwife or death doula. In your 20s, you traveled to Africa to learn more about your Kenyan father who had already passed away. You shared on your blog that your blended Scottish Kenyan ancestry meant that you were neither a local nor a tourist. You were a tribe of one, adrift in a nation of many. It was 1986, and as you traveled through East Africa with others you met along the way, you found yourself in the Luero Triangle. Brushes with death were frequent. You passed through South Africa, Uganda, and Somalia at a time of intense strife and peril. Those experiences were life-changing. The atrocities that defied human understanding had not murdered the spirit of hope. The people I met were not trying to reclaim power in their lives through revenge, but by rebuilding. Visitors were invited to witness what hate had done, but also what the human spirit could do. My mind couldn't fully appreciate what that meant at that time, but it is a lesson my soul absorbed and has shaped my life ever since. Lessons from death are always lessons about living. Later, when you turned 50, you decided to develop your growing interest in end-of-life care. You became a hospice volunteer and then studied to become a soul midwife, a guide, a carer, and advocate for the dying and their families. Living in the so-called Western world, I was fascinated by your choice of vocation. There's no question that in North America we have a fear of death, an aversion to dealing with it. We hide ourselves from it, from thinking about it, facing it. The current pandemic, especially at the beginning, has forced many of us to contemplate our own mortality. Circumstances have robbed many people of the gift of being present during their loved one's passage, a process that helps us and our loved ones with acceptance, redemption, grief, or perhaps simply a good death. Welcome to the arena, Beth. Thank you. That's a very kind introduction. Oh, you're quite welcome. I thoroughly enjoyed what you'd written in your blog. And it's a number of years ago. There's passages from 2011 and 2013, I think, in there. I would encourage you yeah. to pick up where you <laughs> left off because you have a beautiful way of expressing your experiences yeah. and also what the experience of being, what do you call it? 
End of life doula. Okay. Uh, end of life doula. That's becoming the more common term. But it's a career. It's um, the, the idea of maternity is, is this sort of overarching idea of it's one journey. You know, when we begin a dying process, we die. You can think of it as crossing a threshold. And then you know, the, uh, the, whatever's happening to the spirit, the essence, whatever it is, that force that we we recognize as the person, the actual human being, has departed and we're left with the body and then what we do with the body. So it's one continuum. But in our society, what we tend to do is chop it up into these pieces. And there's one group of people that takes care of you when you're dying. Somebody else does the funeral and someone else buries some overlap. But really, we're thinking about it in three different ways. So what I'm working on is looking at this in a more inclusive, holistic way. For the person who's dying and the people who love them, this is one journey from now I'm actively dying to now please do something with my body that honors how I lived is one, is is a whole, I would say that. So I am writing again, and I didn't answer your original question, I'm realizing. And what I'm doing right now is I'm being very local. I'm realizing that where I live in Rhode Island, we have one green cemetery, one natural burial ground. It's on a little island, and it's only for the people who live on that island. And then there's a little pocket handkerchief of a of a hybrid cemetery, as according to the Green Burial Council has these designations. They're doing an amazing job, the Green Burial Council. And in this 200 acre cemetery which is historic and wonderful and beautifully taken care of there's a little pocket handkerchief sized piece in the middle where you can be buried without some of the the concrete and the steel and all the stuff that goes into a a modern cemetery so i'm working on connecting the people who are supporting people uh, through the dying process and supporting the hospice process seeing if there's anyone around who who wants to work on this initiative to get a green burial ground locally. So that's what I'm working on right now. So I am doing some blogging around that there, and it's fun to be writing again. I've missed it. And the name of your business is Morternity. So the idea for Morternity came up in that phase oh, seven or eight years ago when I first started thinking, somebody needs to do something about this. There's There aren't enough options for for people who don't want to just go into the sausage machine of uh, you're terminally ill, lie in hospital and there'll be machines beeping and, and then you'll die and then uh, they'll fill you full of formaldehyde and bury you. So maternity, the idea came up there and it's around that idea of maternity, preparing for birth and how your life is going to change completely and irrevocably. Obviously, that's the, the former threshold and maternity deals with the later threshold. It's interesting because what also came to mind was modernity. In, oh, yeah. So it's a much more modern way of looking at mortality. I hope it's a modern way of looking at mortality yeah. and and embracing that perhaps in a new way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Evolving from our fearful way of looking at death and what is on the other side. And again, as you were, were saying earlier, what are we doing with our bodies? And what kind of imprint are we leaving on the earth with our bodies through the disposition, as you were, were saying? And I was very interested. I saw a speaker, and, and her thing was these mushroom shrouds. Oh, and yes. so using 
uh, shroud that's got all these spores in it. And so you're wrapped in this and basically the spores take over and, and basically you're turned back into dirt. That's right. And, and there's something in this mycelium that... Um, mycelium, thank bio, you, that's the word. <laughs> uh, that does some, there's some bioremediation of toxins and you know, all this stuff that we've put into our lives and been exposed to in our journey through illness. Yeah, so there's some kind of remediation there. So we're, yeah, we're healthy for the vi- environment in all sorts of ways. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I like that idea of modernity. I've heard some people have said, oh, it's like mortality and eternity. And so there are di- it's interesting to hear what comes out of that name. But that idea of the modern piece, I really like, because in so many ways, we're returning to um, how death care used to be. It used to be that, of course, you died at home, as long as it was natural causes. You were cared for at home. If you lived rurally, then you buried in the family plot or the local church or something. Formaldehyde and embalming didn't come into fashion until Abraham Lincoln died in the 1860s. So it's this change in culture has been very recent. What we think of as tradition is less than 200 years old. And before it, there's millennia of us taking care of each other as we're dying, taking care of each other once we have passed. So it's a return to that. But of course, medicine being where it is now, you don't need to suffer the incredible pain or discomfort of the symptoms in the same way. And often not at all. Hospice has um, brought care at home and in hospice institutions to a whole other level. So the, with the pain and suffering under control, the equation has changed a lot. So yeah, what do we want our modern take on it to be now that we have the old options that we had before, but we have a whole slew of new ways of making it possible um, in a better way? Take me back to your childhood. What was dinner conversation like in your household growing up? <laughs> so I've been dreading this question because I can't remember. What I remember about family mealtimes or those early formative family conversations. When I was very young, my father was very ill. It was a series of complications that kind of built one on the other. He was from Kenya, as you said. He'd had malaria in Kenya. He then, when he came to Scotland to be uh, studied to be a doctor, he contracted tuberculosis. This was in the, the 50s before I was born. But he had that. It, the treatment for tuberculosis kind of could be complicated. So he had that. He had the malaria. And then he developed an ulcerative condition. He developed Crohn's disease. And the treatment for that was steroids. But if you use steroids, you mask the symptoms of malaria. So He was very ill in hospital when I was young for at least a year um, and suffering from it afterwards. My mother was um, a nurse, so earning next to nothing. She's trying to manage me and my two brothers, who were all very small, earn enough money to keep the family going, etc. Go and visit my father, who was in the hospital a couple of hours away. Yeah, the times that I remember... There was always a lot going on. Uh, meal times, I remember my dad used to make this amazing chicken curry. So Sunday dinner was either this amazing chicken curry or it was a traditional British roast, depending on whether it was my mother or my father cooking. And that, of course, was quite different to what was going on at the the dinner tables of most other home in the area where I grew up. And then as I got older, my mother raised us. So it was a single family, my two brothers. And my mother was my elementary school teacher. So it wasn't even conversations like, so what happened at school today? Because she knew what had happened at school. Yeah, it was a two-room schoolhouse. She was my teacher for, I don't know, four years, something like that. 
So I don't really remember what the conversations were about. How Um, young were you when your father passed away? I was actually, it's a really complicated story. He went back to Kenya to ostensibly recover and didn't. So I was actually around 14 when he died, but he went back to Kenya when I was around seven or eight. Yeah, it gets really messy. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, he was at one point, he was diagnosed as being terminally ill. So things were, at that point, I was probably about five years old, something like that. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of stress just under the the surface that I don't really remember as a child. Mm. I remember going to visit my father in hospital and we would, my brothers and I would just be a a quick hello. Sometimes it was hello through a window. But what I remember the visits is playing outside in these beautiful um, gardens that were very peaceful around the hospital where he was while my mother visited. And how did your parents address his illness and likely imminent death? I don't know that they did. I certainly don't remember it. It's, yeah, it wasn't until years later. I was in my late teens, early 20s, probably, before my mother and I really had those conversations about exactly how how dire things had been at that point. Her parents were um, older. They lived far away. And her father, my grandfather, had volunteered for the First World War and been gassed and then was a prisoner of war. He survived being gassed, but then he was a prisoner of war. Um, So he had health issues, terrible bronchitis for all of his life. He volunteered for the Second World War and then had to be invalided out. So her parents had a lot to deal with and they were far away. So there was no family support network around us. So I think my parents, they just, they dealt with it by just we're going to do what we have to do and we're going to deal with each step as it comes. And I don't remember any family conversations about it. I remember my mother changing dressings on my father's abdomen one day, but you know, I have these odd little pockets of memories, but it's just, when you're so young as a child, it's just, well, this is the way things are. Yes. You don't really think much about it. So it wasn't, it wasn't talked about. When I first went to Kenya, I I had this, it was just an epic journey, getting money together, buying the the cheapest air ticket, which was on Aeroflot, the Russian airlines in in the 80s, that was the cheapest way to fly anywhere. So on New Year's Day, it's freezing cold in London, where I'd been living. And I get on a plane and there was a 48 hour stopover in Moscow. You locked into this hotel and the food was dreadful. I got awful food poisoning. I was up all night being sick. I arrive in the heat of Nairobi and the family have come in a car that they've borrowed from someone and the car is packed with people, just enough room for me. And we're driving for hours up through these red dirt roads up to the family home and stopping to meet various people. And of course, I'm exhausted. I'm drained. There's all these people I don't know. I have no idea what's going on. We finally arrive at my grandmother's shamba, her home, which is like a small farm where you you grow your subsistence crops and then you have a a cash crop. She grew coffee as a cash crop. So I'm meeting my grandmother for the first time and this auntie and that auntie and these cousins. And oh, by the way, there's your father's grave. What? (laughs) It's just this very simple sandstone sort of raised box looking thing that looked like a, a sandstone bench that you could go and sit on and it was like yes there's your father's grave and it was, oh my gosh I just lost it it was oh boy 
Wow. So I was sat in the parlor while everyone else gathered outside and just like, my goodness, what has happened? I'm just in a completely different world. That was uh, one of the earlier conversations about my father's death. And at that point, I was 24. What event in your life has had the most profound impact on you? Oh, boy. I think probably I would say my brother's death. He died when I was 17. I just left home and I hadn't really officially left home. I'd, I'd finished school. I was supposed to go to college in the fall and I'd always wanted to travel. I always wanted to go to France for some reason. It's not far from Britain. So I had gone to France and then ended up actually on the south coast of England. And um, very suddenly, it was a motorbike accident. My brother, who was just 18 months younger than me, so we'd been very close. And David died instantly in this accident. And so from going from this place of, oh, isn't this fun? I'm traveling. I can be whoever I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. The world is full of all these fantastic possibilities. Suddenly there was this, oh my goodness, life is fine. I, I, I don't know. It's a very grounding moment, shall we say. And my mother, of course, was so devastated by this. David had just left school. You can leave school at 16 in Scotland if you go and do something vocational and if you don't want to go to college. And he had not loved school. So it was like, oh, finally, and David's out of school and now he can really get on with his life. So just the irony was awful on top of all this, all the grief and the sadness. So she was, um, okay, so you're not going to go to college. What are, what are you going to do? Oh, oh, I'll do nursing. Now that I've said I'm going to do nursing, I guess I better uh, apply. <laughs> so I did. So I still, I did travel. I've traveled a lot now. I absolutely love to travel, but it definitely helped there always be that part of me that is thinking in terms of, I don't know, life purpose of meaning. You hear quite often about how on their deathbed, no one ever says, I wish that I had worked more. But I don't know that they say, I wish I'd had more exotic holidays either. I think it's more about, did I stand up for what I believe in? How did I spend the time with the people that I care about and the people that I love? Have I made a difference for anybody in the world, I think is the big thing. So that stays with me. I feel more it's, what have I done to justify you know, the wonders of life and the beauty of the world, you know, it, it's such a gift to be alive. What have I done to, to not pay for it exactly, but how would I say, what have I done to contribute? What a profound lesson to learn at such a young age, at the beginning of your adulthood, to have that lesson thrust upon you. Yeah, for the last few years, I've been working in an elementary school and I've given birth to two children. And I wonder how much of it we come into life with and unlearn. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it doesn't feel like something that invented or discovered from the outside coming in. I feel more like it's, I think we, I've always known this. It sounds arrogant to say that we all have it inside us somewhere. Maybe we don't. I don't know. The people that I've met in this life who are the happiest or most fulfilled seem to be the people who have that feeling of purpose, purposefulness. I've come here to do something and I'm doing it or I'm trying. And it, it doesn't need to be earth shattering. It can be you know, something simple, something quite small, but just something that you've, you're giving your heart to. You're doing it with integrity. It's something you care about and it makes a difference, makes a difference to the planet, makes a difference for another human being, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
What does living a courageous life mean to you? I think being happy is an act of courage in this life. And in this world at the moment, I think it's a huge act of courage to to be happy. To be satisfied, I think, is uh, a courageous thing to say. I gave it my best and that's good enough. I have enough. I don't need to have 10 times more living courageously. I think the another element for me of living courageously is not just accepting this is the way that it's always been done or this is just the way that it is. If you see something that's that could be better, that could be that could serve people better. Can you be the one that stands up and says, hey, I think we should try something differently? So that kind of goes a guy to both sides of my mouth, doesn't it? <laughs> it's courageous to be satisfied. It's courageous to say that I'm not satisfied. I think it's basically, it's the showing up with all of yourself, not hiding. Yeah, to make yourself small, to think, oh, I can't possibly make a difference. I think is ultimately, it's selfish. The world needs all of us. And I think it takes courage to say, you know what? I'm enough. I am a person who's got something to contribute. I can make a difference and to go out there and do it. What's your legacy? My legacy? I don't know yet. I'm only 60. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What's my legacy? Or what would you like it to be? Yeah, I'd like people to embrace the idea, awaken to the idea that to have this perspective of your life that includes your dying, that includes your death, enriches your life. It doesn't negate your life. It doesn't, it's not these superstitious ideas that, oh, if I make a will, I'm going to die. When we think about our lives and our living and what we've done, it needs to include all of it. It needs to include the dying and the death as well. And I think when we can look at our own lives that way, we find it easier to look at the lives of the people that we love that way too. To be able to look after someone who's dying with the awareness that yes, you are dying. The honesty, to really show up for them, to not be, to leave someone lonely in this position of often people who are dying feel like, oh yes, no, I I have to show you that I'm battling. I have to let you keep this hope alive that maybe I'm not gonna die after all. If I give up, then you're going to feel so hurt. That's very isolating. I think if we can change our ideas about death and dying and get over our fear of it and embrace it, see it as the gift that it is ultimately, then we can be much better companions to each other. And I think we live better. What would you do on your last day? (laughs) Um, There'd be a lot of eating involved. Yeah, for little tasting plates. I don't know. But I'd have to have some supersonic jet or something with low emissions, obviously, low carbon emissions, to zip around all these different countries and just have little tastes of all these different foods and say goodbye to all the different people who are around. Um, Yeah, I think anything that just gives that opportunity to soak in the beauty of the world, it's fall in New England so we get this glorious golden light and the leaves just starting to change and I live by the ocean so the the swells are coming up from the south from the various storms so yeah food nature and the people that I love any commingling of that would make a perfect day Hmm. if you had the opportunity to have a conversation with someone for five minutes 
living or dead, who would that be? Oh, I don't know. That's a really tricky one. It would depend what was going on. I'd say the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama seems to just have such a wonderful way about him. I think I don't know what we'd talk about, but um, but what a wonderful example of peace and good humor, gentleness and strength, kindness and awareness of what's happening in the world. Even five minutes of his presence, I think, would be transformative. Just silence, being present. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? I don't think so. Nope. It's been a good experience. It's a, it's a first. It's always great to have a first experience of something. Hmm. How does one have a conversation with someone who hasn't accepted their death and is in that stage of being extremely fearful of what's happening to them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's a, it's a huge question. And um, a lot of it, of course, is going to depend on the individual, on the person, on the circumstances, on your relationship to them. There's no quick answer. There's no easy answer. I think for, I think one of the things that's exciting about the, increasing number of resources and people working in this field is that there's a lot of help, a lot more help available than ever before. Hospice has social workers that help with this kind of issue. The end-of-life doulas, death midwives um, are trained in in how to help you facilitate those conversations. So I think what I would, the briefest answer, I think the answer would be get some help. The National End-of-Life Doula Association is just one of the associations. But if you go to their website, they have listings of -of end-of-life doulas. So you can find someone who can help you with this. And yeah, and presumably the members of the care team of the hospice team are there to help and support you with this. It's not an easy task. The social workers and the doctors and the nurses are there to help to a degree, but it's also being the survivor. Yeah. That was going to be my question is for the person who's dying, if they don't want to talk about it, if they don't want that help, et cetera, it's all, I think you have to honor that to a, a mm-hmm. large degree and think about mm-hmm. why is it that I want this person to have the conversation when it's the people who are caring for them, when you're caring for the carers, that's a different conversation. It's, it's, yeah. What are you trying to fix? What's the, the suffering that you're seeing that you're hoping something can be done about? That's really tricky. Um, Mm -hmm. listening is so much I know it doesn't yeah it can feel like I'm not doing anything listening's huge inviting the conversation yeah 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 Yeah. if you're not fearful about the subject or the conversation that's you're giving so much because there aren't answers so much as there are questions it's, it's more like developing the questions. What are the questions? Those times in life when finding the answer is easier than finding the question. Even if it's as simple as just writing it down as a letter, if you can't have the conversation. I spoke about this with a friend whose sister was dying and was just completely unresolved. With She'd broken up with her partner right before she was diagnosed with mm. terminal cancer. And she had so much anger and she, there was a lot that she had to work through with it. And, and she couldn't because they weren't in touch. They were on different sides of the country. But to write that letter down and whether to send the letter or not, deliver it, is a different conversation. 
mm-hmm. but to help somebody to actually write it and get it down to articulate it can do a lot of healing in its own right. I wrote letters to my family this past Christmas and just basically told them how much they mean to me. Right. And it seemed like a crazy exercise in some respects, but this COVID time has been very impactful for me in terms of let's talk about mortality. We just don't know if and when this is going to happen. And so I felt the need to sharing with them what they mean to me in my life. That's lovely. It, It felt a bit awkward in some ways. It felt like something you'd put in with your will. Here's that right. in the in the envelope with the will and uh-huh. all my wishes and everything. But I just thought, no, I wanted this to be a living. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. That is living courageously. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, um, you're so welcome. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and perspective with the listeners. This has been a delight. I hope it's not our first and last conversation. It's yeah, been really enjoyable. Thank you. As we approach the end of 2021, what have you left unsaid? What lingers between you and those you love? I ask each of my guests what they would do on their last day. For most of us, we would want to spend those final moments in the presence of loved ones. Many of my guests also talk about living their legacy every day. How will you find the courage to live into the things that you most cherish? Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts become a member of the arena. Go to my website, thearena-podcast.com and click on the support button. It's so greatly appreciated. Thank you. I look forward to sharing my next guest's story. He's an accomplished marathon, triathlon, and ultramarathon runner who only started his athletic career at the age of 47. He's overcome repeated setbacks to help many others reach their dreams. It's a remarkable conversation. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in the arena.